What's up, everyone? This is episode 110 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I want to start off by saying thanks to those of you that commented on last week's episode. Like I said then, there's a lot of great stuff that Panini has made over the course of their basketball license. I own a lot of Panini cards. I like a lot of Panini cards, but I don't like where things are currently headed. And the level of carelessness on their part is pretty remarkable. Um, If you follow my social media, you've seen a few errors that I posted in the last week. Um, One of them that I, I posted on Monday was a picture of a new of a rookie that had been photoshopped from a you know a photo from a couple years ago but they didn't photoshop the defender's jersey so you see it's a college jersey that's guarding this pro player um and then I also posted some stuff from the new prism release so it's you know in that case it's really simple stuff like putting the wrong player's picture on a card um we saw that on hoops as well if you look at Miles Turner's hoops card this year it's a picture of Justin Holiday. All this stuff, it's just careless and lazy. But the problem is, if you like basketball cards, there's really no other choice right now. At least if you like licensed NBA basketball cards. And that's what I tried to communicate in that episode. Panini is making money hand over fist simply because of the license. It's not all stuff that they're doing. Um, You know, it's hard for me to stop buying Panini stuff. I can be critical of it, but it's hard for me to stop because, you know, I they're like I said, they're the only ones making it. Um, And you know what? It's also hard for me to find it. So I haven't found retail in stores since the second wave of Optic and then a cello or two at Prism Draft. A lot of you guys can, I know you can relate. This is not a unique situation here, but for the most part, I've stopped trying to find it. However, I do really like prism even with all of the airs i like the prism lineage and and like it's a product i've opened since 2012 and that new prism came out this week and because of a strange series of events i thought i had a decent shot at finding some um a lot of targets have started this new thing where they distribute whatever trading cards they have friday morning at eight o'clock And I'm not sure if that's nationwide yet, but I've heard it's heading there. Well, I happen to have Good Friday off, and Mrs. Wax Museum did as well, and she needed to make a run to Target, so I thought, you know what, if I'm ever going to try this, the time is now. And, you know, I'd heard that prison was out. So I'd seen pictures of people camping out at Target's the night before and sleeping on shopping carts and all sorts of crazy things, um, camped out in chairs. There's no way I was going to do that. Um, instead I said, you know what, let's show up at 7.30, let's see what it li- you know, see what it's like, at worst we wait 30 minutes outside and, and we chat with some people and then we're on our way. So that's what we did. We rolled up at 7.30 in the morning, um, at the Target that I went to, there were already 16 people in line, so if they even had Prism, I wasn't sure if there'd be enough for me to get some, but, you know, I was committed, like I said, we had some, a reason to be there anyway, so they had us all wait outside the store, and even after everything opened up, the line they had our line stay outside of the store, and they sent us in one at a time. And I don't know if that's how it's going to be at every one, but 8 o'clock rolled around, 
the first guy goes in, he comes back out, and he says, there's no prism. But there's Donruss basketball blasters and packs. There's a bunch of Pokemon. There's contenders football. And there's quite a bit of baseball. Well, um, I, I've said it before. I love Donruss when it debuted in 2010. It's one of my favorite modern Panini sets. But I haven't thought much of it since then. Um, at the same time, I wanted to rip something with the new rookies. So I stuck around. And our store had a limit of three card items per person. So... The blasters were gone by the time we got there, but my wife and I ended up with three fat packs of Donruss apiece. It, it's probably good that we didn't get the blasters because um, I opened those up on my YouTube channel later on. If you really want to see it, you can, but be warned, there weren't any remarkable hits and the break was a bit of a snoozer. So anyway, I did get some retail, but um, not the retail I was looking for. I won't have another Friday off until June, so that was probably my last shot for a while. I figured it was worth a try, but I'm just going to have to come to the realization that I'm probably not going to open Prism for the first time since its debut, and the, you know what? That kind of bums me out, but I'll get over it. Anyway, enough about my adventures. I've got a fun episode lined up for you today. I want to start with a few brief comments on the current PSA situation. I know a lot of people have weighed in on that already, so I won't spend long on that. I've got some mail to tell you about, and then I've got the third installment of my listener mailbag. You guys had some great questions for me this week, and I had a lot of fun piecing that together. Okay, so if you haven't heard, PSA has pretty much closed off all current submissions, and you know there's still a high, super expensive level. I don't know what price that is. But it's not really ideal for most people. At one point, I heard that the company had a 12 million card backlog. I figure it jumped even higher after they announced the price increases in March. I gotta give them credit. I, You know, you have a 12 million card backlog. I think at some point, you do have to say, all right, we gotta get this caught up. Um, and that's what they're doing here. So I gotta give them credit. All of these grading companies are swamped. Um, and like I said, you just gotta get caught up. Now, I'm also interested to see if any company is really going to be able to step up and fill the void. I saw SGC raise their prices to $75. You know, I don't blame them for that. If you can grade less cards and make the same amount of money and not have a backlog, that's a no-brainer to me. So I get that. Um, I've also seen more people say they're going to send to HGA and CSG. Um, I know HGA caps their submissions at so many cards a week. I don't know about CSG. I think out of all of the smaller companies, though, that CSG has the infrastructure and the expertise to make a little bit of noise, um, but we'll see. The sample size is still very small. What interests me the most, though, about this whole thing is the shifting narrative on slabbed cards. There are a lot of people in the card world right now that have built their empires out of these little plastic slabs. Um, and now the same people are trying to sell you on the fact that the raw cards they're trying to sell you are valuable. So which one is it? Because it used to be, well, this is valuable because of the slab. And now, you know, you have to ask the question, is the card valuable because of the card itself or the label that sits on top of it? And I know people have been clamoring for grading companies to become more efficient. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Be careful what you wish for. 
when these 12 million cards come back and the market is absolutely flooded with junk, what do you think is going to happen to the prices and the values of all your cards? Well, I suppose that's when people will continue trying new things to differentiate their liquid cards from someone else's. That's how we got that stupid diamond sticker company now that's essentially grading the graders. And I've heard people say, yeah, I think it's a dumb idea, but it makes money. So they're doing it. Well, you know, if this continues, we'll have a similar question. Is the card valuable because of the card itself or the sticker that sits on the label that sits on top of it? Buy what you like and buy what looks good to you. You don't need someone else's sticker to tell you a card looks good. Okay, that's a philosophy I live by, and that's a great segue to my mail segment where I talk about some of the things I bought because I liked them. This week, I want to highlight just two cards in particular. I got a lot of mail building up here, but let's just talk about two this week. The first piece is something Pacers and something that's relatively unique, so it checks off multiple boxes for me. This is a 2010-2011 limited banner season patch of Danny Granger, numbered to 10. And it's a relatively small patch, but I like it because it's part of a commemorative patch to honor former Pacers co-owner Mel Simon. And his brother Herb still owns the team today. But um, the Pacers, look, they wore the same style jersey for over a decade. So the patch cards got a little repetitive, a little bit boring. Um, Over the years, I can only think of three special patches the Pacers have worn on the jersey itself, on that boring version of the jersey. It was the Mel Simon tribute. It was a tribute to Mel Daniels. So um, two of them were for guys named Mel. And then the 50th anniversary patch. Well, they wore this Mel Simon patch during the 2009-2010 season. And it really fits with this card. Because the idea behind the banner season set was to commemorate what a player did during the 2009-2010 season. So the card says 09-10 on it. And Danny's wearing a similar patch in the picture. Um, thought that was really cool. See what happens when Panini does stuff that's intentional. Uh, it's special. It can be really good, but that that was a decade ago. Um, anyway, regarding you know Mel Simon, um, I think I've said in the past that Slick Leonard is the most important figure in Pacers franchise history, um, even above Reggie Miller. And I'm going to rank Mel and Herb Simon up there in the same range too, because um, the the two brothers have their background in real estate. Okay, so that's kind of where they got started. Maybe you've heard of Simon Malls or Premium Outlets. You know, they they founded those as part of that. But back in the early 80s, the Pacers were just awful. Right? And I'm not saying they're great now, but they were awful then, right? It, well, in 1983, the owners at the time put the team up for sale. And if someone outside the state had purchased it, it was very likely that they'd move the team. And this was before I was born. So if that had happened, who knows what logo I'd be wearing right now. Probably the Chicago Bulls. I'd probably be a happy Jordan fan with six titles. But anyway, um, Mel and Herb stepped in and they agreed to not only purchase the team, but they vowed to keep them in Indianapolis. And like I said, Herb still owns the team today. Um, His son works for the team and has stated that he has all intentions of keeping them there as well. That's a pretty big deal. So um, I actually have two copies of this card, and to be honest, I'd like to find more. Um, I guess I'm being a little greedy here. I'd love to build the majority of that Mel patch 
with the different pieces from this print run. Okay, the second and final piece of mail I want to talk about is a bit of an oddball piece. It is a 1948 Kellogg's Pep card of George Mikan. And um, I know a lot of modern people like to rag on guys like George Mikan because he played in a much different era of basketball. And, you know, people will say, well, those guys, they wouldn't last in, in today's game. Well, I'm not going to make that kind of judgment. It, it's nearly impossible to compare errors. And quite frankly, it's, it's not fair either. Um, regardless, whether he could or he couldn't play with current players, Mikan is important and should be celebrated because he was the league's first superstar. Not only that, he was so dominant under the basket that the league had to widen the lane from 6 to 12 feet in an effort to level the playing field. So I think those two factors alone cement his spot as one of the 50 greatest players of all time. Um, And a lot of collectors out there feel the same way because of that. I've been priced out of his 1948 Bowman rookie. Even the low-grade copies, it's, it's gotten ridiculous. So that left me searching for a cheaper alternative. And there's a couple different ones that I own now. Like I said, this the newest one that I picked up here is from the Kellogg's Pep set. And Kellogg's Pep was a cereal. My understanding is that it was a, a rival to the Wheaties. I think it was discontinued in the 70s. If you haven't seen this set, the cards are really small. I don't know if they were attached to the box somewhere or just dropped in the bag of cereal itself. They're certainly small enough that they could have been, but I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, I haven't actually seen how these were distributed. So if you know more about that, please reach out to me. I'd love to know. You won't see too many copies of this card for sale at, at the same time. Um, and the version that I bought, I think you know, it was out there because it's slabbed by PSA as altered. It looks like somebody probably hacked up one of the sides. It doesn't bother me to own an altered card, as long as that's disclosed, which in this case it is. In fact, I think that helped me get a better price on it, and I'm very happy to own it. So, um, one more thing here. I, I mentioned that Mikan was the league's first star. And um, this is something I was talking about this week with Jason, a.k.a. Small Town Cards, but... I feel like the NBA and ESPN don't do a very good job of marketing the sport's older legends. So we got the Jordan documentary, which was fantastic. I enjoyed it. I'm thankful for it. We've had some 30 for 30 stuff that's been really good. Um, But if you go further back than that, you know, a lot of these guys are still alive. The NBA is a relatively young league, but we don't get to hear from the older stars all that much. And I remember the last time I saw Oscar Robertson on TV, it was before a nationally televised Bucks game. I think it was a Saturday night. Um, it was great that they actually gave him airtime, but I felt like they used him um, exclusively to further the narrative for Russell Westbrook about the triple doubles and then Giannis because he was a, a Milwaukee player. So they're talking to this guy who's who's been an amazing part of history, but they're doing that more so, I feel like, to further the current players and talk about them. Players who are already getting their due, by the way, and getting their fair share of airtime. So long story short, I don't like the way the players of the past are marketed. Um, I know my show is small in the grand scheme of things, but I can assure you one thing. Um, they aren't going to get the same treatment from me. Okay, 
Before I move on to today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click either the Fanatics link or the eBay logo at the top. This is especially important if Fanatics ends up listing special prism or optic boxes like they've done in the past. I feel like one of those might be coming any day now. But anyway, shop as planned on either eBay or Fanatics, and the Wax Museum podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, you guys submitted a lot of great questions to me over the last weekend. A lot of them revolved around Panini and some of the licensing stuff I talked about in the last episode. I also had a few questions about card shows and lot hunting, so I've tried to lump everything together accordingly. And thanks to everyone that submitted a question. I had to limit it to 10 this time. I cut some out for time's sake. So if I cut yours out, I apologize. But just know, I number one, I appreciate it. I appreciate the time that you took asking it. Um, and then secondly, know that I'll do more of these down the road. All right, enough chatter. Let's dig in. The first question comes from slangandrocks.pc on Instagram. And he asks, when are you going to sell NFTs of your Wax Museum podcast cards? I'll settle for one number to 5000 since I'll never be able to afford an original. Well, I realize this was asking jest, but I like the question, and it lets me talk about a couple of things. So first off, the whole NFT thing is wild to me. Um, and I still think of not for trade when I see NFT because I've been on card forums for... I don't know, who knows how long, over 15, 16 years at this point. So I still think of not for trade, but that's not what it stands for. There's a different meaning now. The NFT thing is wild to me. I get it in the sense that I have a functional understanding of how it works, but at the same time, I don't get it, especially when it comes to people that want to treat them like sports cards. Uh, Take Top Shot, for example, and I've talked about that one a little bit before. If you want to buy, sell, trade something that's electronic, that's fine. That's cool. That's your thing. Calling it a collectible seems like a bit of a stretch, though. I would say it's more a vehicle than anything. Now, if you really want an animated basketball moment that you can collect, well, I've got something for you. I don't know who it was that posted uh, one of these on Instagram a couple weeks ago. I tried to find you to give you credit, but... Searching post on there is near impossible. Um, But Topps came out with a set in 1998 called Golden Greats. And these are thick lenticular cards that feature a shot of an NBA legend, which I just talked about those guys, in action. We're talking guys like Rick Barry and George Gervin. They're really cool. Um, I feel like I'm very well versed in this hobby, and yet somehow I don't think I've ever seen these before. They've been out a long time. Or if I have seen them... Um, you know, I overlooked them or they didn't mean much to me at the time. So anyway, I know that's not really what you ask about, but everyone's talking about collecting basketball moments. If that's what you really want, 
maybe 1998 Topps Golden Greats is the set for you. And if you want to see those in action, you're in luck. I posted a YouTube video with some of those cards earlier this week. Okay, next question. At Tough Times Cards ask, what's your favorite 70s Wilt and Jerry West card? Well, uh, neither one of these guys showed up past the 1974 top set. And even if they did, the Wilt card's an easy choice for me, which it would be for Wilt, the 1974 tops card. On this particular card, it's just a headshot, but um, very colorful card. And he's listed as a coach and a center for the ABA's San Diego Conquistadors. And some of you, I'm, I'm sure you probably haven't heard a lot about that time, but the story goes like this. Um, in 1973, Wilt was at the end of his Lakers contract. There wasn't a lot of interest on either side, the way I understand it. So he signed a three-year deal with the Conquistadors for $600,000 a year, which is way more than he would have got with the Lakers um, to be their player slash coach with the emphasis on the player part. And there were some pretty, you know, these were wild times. There were some pretty substantial rumors that the other ABA teams helped to pool money to pay his new salary in order to get him to jump leagues. See, competition's a good thing, right? Well, the problem was he still owed the Lakers an option year on his contract. So they went to court and it was ruled if Wilt plays basketball, it's got to be for the Lakers. He could, however, still coach for San Diego, and that's what ended up happening, or at least I should say he had the title of coach. The Wilt as coach experiment wasn't a great one, particularly because, you know, his heart wasn't in it, and it only lasted for one season, even though he signed a three-year deal. Anyway, this 1974 Topps card is representative of that whole situation, and I summed it up real quick there, but... Um, I absolutely love it. I've got a raw copy of this card that's got a bit of wear. Someday I'd like to upgrade if I can. As far as Jerry West goes, I like his 1971 tops. You know, I had a whole long story for the Wilt. There's not a big story for the West. Um, as Kirk and I discussed a couple episodes ago, that bright pink background really pops, and it's just a great-looking card, and I love it. Okay, moving on. Um, don't care, go cats said, love the mailbag episodes. What gives you more enjoyment, admiring your current collection or the chase of finding the next card for your PC? Well, I liked this question enough that I read it out loud to Mrs. Wax Museum when it popped up on my phone. And without hesitation, she said, I think it's the chase for you. And I really, I was thinking about this several weeks ago before this question was even asked. Every time I track down a really rare Pacers card, it seems like I'm just stashing it away and I'm onto the hunt for the next one almost immediately. I really like the process. I like searching. I like tracking the card as it moves through different mailing facilities. I like the dopamine rush of getting an envelope in the mail. No matter what I do, I think I'm just wired to like all of those things. With that being said... I don't feel like I appreciate the cards that I already own as much as I should. And I want that to change. And that's part of why I like doing mail day segments so much. You notice, you know, when I first started the show, I wasn't doing that. People said they wanted to hear more of my collection. Um, so it kind of serves a dual purpose. But it forces me to take each card and write out 
why I made that purchase. Write out what makes that particular card unique. It forces me to take pictures of the card and post them. And then that in turn usually elicits a response from other collectors and I get a chance to talk to them some more. At the same time, though, this is a cycle because let's say if I grab a Pacers Logoman card, which is very rare, I haven't grabbed one lately, um, I like to pull out all of my Logoman cards together and see them all at once. Well, that moment of appreciation, guess what? It makes me want to get more. So no matter how many things I accumulate, I don't think I'm ever going to feel like my collection is complete. And maybe I don't want it to. You know, Maybe I don't want to feel that way. Um, I guess I'm going to keep chasing, and I don't think that's ever going to change. Next question. This comes from a user named KPB underscore cards. He said, thanks for your openness on sharing the lots you've been buying on eBay. That has been a big part of my collecting the last couple months and got me over the frustration of not being able to find packs to rip. My question is this. How do you acquire or build up your inventory to sit at card shows while also improving the personal collection you have? So this goes along with the last question because it revolves around a chase. I get a lot of satisfaction out of buying a lot for, say, um, 30 bucks and finding a $50 to $60 card in there. That's really exciting to me. So uh, that in itself serves a purpose and it makes me feel accomplished. Once I've done that, I decide what to keep and then um, whatever cards are left over get added to my inventory. And, you know, I get I, sometimes I get attached to the cards that I get in that I meant to sell. So that's that's a problem in itself. But um, in some cases, there might be cards I want um, and I add everything. Um, whatever funds come from that will either go to future lots or cards for my PC. So um, I don't know if I articulated that last point correctly, but whatever comes in that lot, if, if I don't want it, it goes in my inventory, basically. Now, in some cases, I might buy a, a lot or a small collection because there's something in there I really want. About a year ago, maybe even a little longer, um, I unboxed a collection purchase on my YouTube that had a ton of Houston Texans stuff. I think a lot of you watched that. This was a $400 lot. I bought this for one Chris Bosch NBA Finals card that was maybe worth $100 or maybe $150 at most. But this card was super rare and I didn't think I'd ever find it listed individually. Well, that whole big collection, I've been selling that stuff off since then and I still have quite a bit of it. Keep in mind, that was a year ago. I just eclipsed the $400 mark in sales from that lot. Now, granted... I still have some stuff that I haven't sold um, and I'm not in a hurry to sell, right? The whole thing was a lot of work, but I feel good about this because in my head, that Chris Bosch card was free and I'll make a little extra in the process. Like I said, I still have some nice cards left over. Um, when you factor in the table cost and the time I invested, I know it wasn't technically free, but you get the idea. And right now I'm at a stage in my collecting in my life where I enjoy that grind it's fulfilling, it's fun, but it probably won't last forever. Okay, the next question relates to the last one a little bit. Um, it comes from MC Basketball PC, and they wrote, Card Show Question, what do you think are some of the best ways to make your table into more of a standout slash enjoyable experience for others who come to the show? Um, 
I feel like there are a, a few things I do that set my table apart. And I'm not saying I'm the most successful person there either, but um, there are a couple things I do that I think work well for me. Number one, I have a price tag on almost everything. I feel like it saves both sides a lot of time. Um, you might find one or two you know, higher cards there that don't have a sticker, but that's it. I don't like the back and forth, and that's a huge part of this whole process. Um, and I'm also not bashful about telling someone that I, I put a price on there for a reason. So I know I appreciate that when I'm a customer, and I hope other people feel the same way as well. Uh, number two, a lot of the shows I go to have the same types of cards in every single display case. And it's shiny, slabbed, Luca, Zion, and so on and so on. Um, and now, I'll sell shiny graded cards if I end up with them, but I don't get too many of them because I'm buying lots. Um, and you, you're not going to find new ultra-modern cards in lots, at least not the ones that I'm buying. So I did have a couple people at my last show at my table tell me that I was the only guy that had 90s inserts. Well, that was kind of strange to me because I, you know, that makes it seem like I had a lot, but I only had um, a few, you know, that I thought were tough pulls there. I had an Iverson Thrill Seekers. I had a Kerry Kittles Ultra Stars Gold, which I found a home for, by the way. A guy walks up and he has the Kerry Kittles Ultra Stars, a Kerry Kittles Titanium. So, I knew I, you know, like, all right, I'm going to make sure this guy gets it somehow, some way. Um, and then I also sold a, a Jason Kidd Hot Numbers. Uh, but I didn't have, I didn't really have a lot of that stuff. I just had those specific ones. So I think people really appreciate seeing that kind of stuff. Um, and similarly, I don't mind picking up a card that I'm not going to make a lot of money on. Now, I'm also not, I'm not going to lose money on it, right? But I'll pick up a card that I'm not going to make a lot of money on if I think that it's going to be an interesting talking point, right? If I can get people to stop and talk with me at my table or to appreciate some of the cards at my table, I feel like the experience is going to be better for everyone involved. Um, and then number three, finally, I try to have stuff at multiple price points. I don't have the ultra high-end stuff. I'm not looking to move, not looking to get into that. Um, but I've got dollar boxes, I've got stuff that's $5, $10, so on and so on. Um, and then basically everything that's $50 or more goes in the showcase. So I try to offer stuff that people with different budgets can enjoy. Um, a lot of the cheaper stuff is is decent stuff, but it's leftover from lots that I'm buying. So it's, it's basically um, just extra, right? Like I don't have a lot of money in that stuff, so it all works out. Um, and then I'm not going to bother selling all that low stuff online. So I, I really like the local card show format. Um, it took a little bit of practice, but I, I feel like it, it's working well for me. But then again, you know, everything moves right now. So ask me in, in another year or two. Okay, moving on. Um, Ty, which is my player collections on Instagram, ask which basketball centric movie deserves an insert set? And then he added the correct answer is the fish that saved Pittsburgh, but I will listen to all wrong answers. Um, Ty, I, I know you're going to message me after this because I'm going to disappoint you here. I've heard a lot about the movie. I know NBA TV made a big deal about it. I know it's on there a lot. I've never actually seen this movie. Um, it, it, even with Julius Irving, it just didn't appeal to me. I'm not much of a movie guy. 
And truth be told, I haven't seen a lot of popular basketball-themed movies. So uh, at the same time, Ty, you can't realistically ask me this question and not expect me to say Hoosiers, though. I will forever, forever be thankful that Panini used the Pacers hickory shorts for a set of hand, um, for a set of with a handful of cards, a uh, you know, a handful of years ago. I thought that was really cool. Uh, I know Topps has already had some Gene Hackman autographs in character as Coach Normandale. Um, and as much as I like White Men Can't Jump, I'm not really intrigued by any card set that would go with it. So by default, because I know, you know, Blue Chip, some of these movies already had cards. So by default, I'm going to appease you for a moment here. If this Fish movie set gave us on-card autographs of Marv Albert as himself and Harry Shear, or cut autographs of Chick Hearn and some of the more obscure basketball people that were involved, I'm all for it. I looked at the cast. Quite a few of the people involved are still alive. Maybe, you know, maybe you need to reach out. Maybe you can convince one of these smaller companies like Rittenhouse or Parkside to take that on. I don't think you want Panini to handle that one. Who knows, um, you know, whose cards would they have Marv Albert signing? Who knows? Um... Speaking of Panini, the next question piggybacks off last week's episode. It comes from, I hope I'm saying this right, Levetti509. I think that's a user from Twitter. They ask, what will it take to get the NBA to reconsider Panini's exclusive license? Well, if it's going to happen in the next couple of years, one of the other major manufacturers would have to fork over an insane amount of money. But to be honest with you, I don't know where they're going to get it. So in the long term, I think I think the hobby as a whole would almost have to tank. And that's contingent on a couple of things. So what drives the market? Well, I would say largely it's fueled by rookies and grading. So we would have to have several bad rookie classes in a row who also had bad sophomore seasons. And... Um, that would, you know, also kind of tank interest in the NBA in general, unfortunately. And then, as I alluded to earlier, if grading becomes a lot more efficient, I think a lot of the ultra-modern stuff might drop in value. So we wouldn't be selling out every product that's printed on paper and misprinted on paper. Um, but what are the odds that those two things happen over time and the NBA does a proper evaluation of what Panini's been putting out? Probably not that good. Um, so in the meantime, if I can play a small part in bringing some of this stuff to light, I'm certainly going to try. I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy, um, but I do think that people need to speak up when things like this are happening. Um, and I would hope that each and every one of you do as well if you see something. So, And, and people have been sending me stuff, so thank you. I, I really do appreciate you sending me that so I can post it on my social media. In a related note... Um, the user chasing exquisite 3 ask if you were made the CEO of Panini or some other card company with an NBA license, what changes would you make to what and how basketball cards are produced and distributed? Thanks and keep up the great content. Well, first off, thank you. Um, let me say though, I'm not an expert in production or distribution. So I I've done what I could to talk, um, to shop owners and distributors former blowout employees, and so on, to get a better grasp on everything. But I think there's a lot going on there that we don't see. And I'm probably not informed enough to properly fix a situation. 
With that being said, I'm going to take a stab at it here. Um, I'd like to take a lot of this inventory out of the big three's hands. That's Blowout and some of the other online um, marketplaces. And I'd like to get it into local card shops instead. The demand is high enough right now that I think this stuff would sell no matter where you put it. And then if you can get more people into a local card shop, I think it gets them connected with like-minded people and they're more likely to stick around. Panini needs to be thinking more about the long-term health of the hobby. As far as retail goes, the whole point of even having these cards in stores was because the major chains are accessible to practically everyone. You know, we got to get cards where everyone can get them. Well, with all the camping out and the reselling, it doesn't serve that purpose anymore. As I described in today's intro, cards aren't really that accessible. Okay, and, and you know, I know I imagine somebody that's just casually into it that's trying to get something. It's impossible. Um, you know, we know uh, those of us that are in the card world here, we know a lot about it and it's hard for us to get it. Um, so in fact, if things continue as they currently are, I think Walmart and Target might decide, you know what, it's just not worth our trouble and our resources. And I wouldn't blame them. In the meantime, though, I would do two things. Number one, I would raise the price of most blasters to 40 or even $50. I don't think they're a great value at that price, but it might discourage some of the flipping. It might keep stuff on the shelves a little bit longer for people that really want it that bad. If there's someone that wants to pay $40 for it, then they can pay $40 for it. Um, and then number two, I would take an idea from Mike Summer of uh, Wax Pack Hero podcast. I've mentioned this before. I, I try to always give him credit. He said that Panini should take one low-end product and print it to the moon. Um, and then just to continue that thought, I think they could, if they did that, they could keep those blasters at $20 while the other ones are at 40 and 50. Um, they keep these blasters on shelves year round, even if the print run is unlimited, just print it until people are sick of it. The cards themselves won't be worth much of anything, but at $20, there's still an experience cost that you can get back from them. You can play pack wars, you can build sets, you can open them together you know, you're, you're buying an entertainment cost here. Um, I know some people won't agree with those ideas. I know they're not a perfect fix, but that is the best that I've got. Okay. Um, do you, here's the next question. Do you think upper deck should continue producing NBA products using the creative measures they did previously on projects like Supreme Hardcore? And if so, do you have any ideas for licensed product that would be legally allowed to release? Um, that question was from at B chronic with a K that makes me think uh, side note here of the short lived tag team from WCW's dying days called chronic with a K. I'm going to assume that's not where you got your name. Anyway, love the question. Uh, do I think upper deck should continue? Absolutely. If they can produce anything that remotely resembles a basketball card, I think that puts a little pressure on Panini to step their game up and it gives us collectors more options. On top of that, they've got ex exclusives with Jordan and LeBron, um, and then also one of the top rookie rookies next year in Jalen Green. As for what they can actually do, I'm not sure. They did the hardcourt set with the pieces of the old Bobcats floor. If they had made those pieces like trading card sized, they wouldn't have been allowed to do it. That's the way I understand it. They can't make something that's the same dimensions as a trading card with an NBA um, uniform on it. So, 
you know, I hope they make a Space Jam set. I think there's a good chance they will, but that's not a licensed NBA set. I do have one idea that I've been thinking about for several years, and I'll need someone to weigh in on the legality of this. That's, you know, I teach middle school, right? Um, so I'll need somebody else to help me with this, but I think they should try a retro buyback product that revolves around athletes signing their old upper deck and Fleer, because they own that too, base and inserts. Like I said, I'm not sure how legal that is, but I know Leaf did something like this with wrestling a couple of years back. So, you know, there might be a chance, right? It would basically be a repacked product of their old products. And then you could put current rookies in the set using the old exquisite design like they do for Goodwin. Um, it would probably be hard for them to make this a cost-efficient product. But if they really want to make a run at the next license and they think they could even break even on something like this, it might be worth a try just to you know get their name out there, produce a quality set, and have that on their um, modern you know portfolio. But like I said, I don't know how that would be cost efficient. They'd have to put like tons of Ray Flaprince autographs in there to make it work. And that would be infuriating to the people opening the product. And, you know, you'd probably hear guys like me complaining about it. But think about some of the real nice cards they could use as chase hits. Once again, they'd have the entire Fleer and Upper Deck catalog to work with. Um, uh, now I'm just getting bummed out because I really want something like that. It's never going to happen, but Upper Deck, if you're listening, call me. Okay, I'm going to close with another fun hypothetical from a user named PK Cards, who wrote, Let's pretend Panini, Tops, and Upper Deck can all create licensed MDA cards, but are each restricted to five sets a year. What are, the, what are some of the sets you would hope they use? Um, okay, so I know you're asking me what sets I hope they use, but people aren't going to want to hear some of the, you know, five of the of my favorite sets necessarily because I don't think that it would be an ideal lineup. So I'm going to try and be mindful of current trends, which is mainly Chromium cards, and I'm going to try and create three lineups that I feel offer a little something for everyone. So each one will include one high-end set at least, one low-end flagship set, one heritage product, because I got to respect my veterans here, and then two fillers that I deem appropriate or needed. So let's start with Panini, because they were listed first. For Panini, I would have National Treasures. That would be my high end. You know, you can't get rid of the rookie RPAs now, even though the rest of the product is garbage. I'm assuming if they had just five sets, you know, they would actually put effort into National Treasures again, and it would be awesome. Likewise, I want to see Flawless. It would be hard for me to get rid of Flawless. I really like that. Um, you got to have a low-end staple, which for them is not Donruss. It's Hoops. It's got to be Hoops. You got to have your Chromium set, which is Prism. And then a, as a bit of a cop-out here, I'm going to say um, Chronicles is the last one. And you can take all awesome inserts from all different brands and you can throw them in Chronicles and it will work. So that's kind of my, my cop-out. You know, I would probably give Panini 10 products since they have the most money and resources out of everyone. But if I gave them five, that's what I'd do. For tops, um, this is a little different here. For the high end, I would create 
So I, I, I didn't like some of their high-end basketball stuff. For, so for high-end, I would create um, Topps Definitive Basketball. And at least from an outsider's perspective, I look at the patches for Definitive Baseball and it looks like an amazing high-end set. And there might be baseball collectors out there who say, you know, oh, he has no idea or whatever. So I could be wrong with that. But it looks like an amazing baseball set. They need a high-end basketball version, so I would bring that over to be my high-end. Um, for my flagship, I would cheat, and I would do a Tops and Tops Chrome hybrid set like they did in 2009, so it has been done before. Keep those Chrome base cards very limited. Uh, make it a special set. I would bring back Tops Finest. I would bring back Tops Total. That would be one of them that you could print to the moon for every kid to have. They wouldn't have to gather, you know, relics or autographs. They could literally just print a cheap base set. And then I would also have a Topps Heritage set where that's where you're kind of honoring your legends and honoring all the players of the past. And, um, you know, imagine LeBron on like a 71 Topps. I think that would be pretty cool. Um, and then for Upper Deck... Okay, up. So this is tough because I'm really I'm throwing Fleer in here too because they've got you know they've got to use those licenses. So the high end is obviously going to be exquisite. I would also throw Ultimate in there. I think that's a great set. Sorry, UD Black, we don't have room for you in this one, but if I did, I would add you in. So exquisite, Ultimate, Fleer Retro because we've got to utilize those retro insert designs. Um, with pro uniforms, that's what I want, not college, pro uniforms. Um, I would use Fleer Ultra as my flagship set because the photography was awesome. And I I think just in general, a lot of Upper Decks base sets just sucked. They weren't, not really iconic, nothing you know really memorable about them. They had nice in-game photography, but um, the cards themselves were kind of boring. The foil, the fonts, all that kind of stuff. Fleer Ultra was always just classy. And then my low-end print to the moon set is going to be collector's choice. That's going to be my ode to the 90s as well. So I know I left a lot of sets out. I know those aren't the most profitable lineups for each company, but I could only pick five, and, and I thought that was a good middle ground. So great question. Good question. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, that went a little longer than I thought it would, but that's all right. I hope I interpreted all your questions as you intended. Maybe there was something I said today that resonated with you. Maybe my responses sparked additional questions. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This is very simple. Before you go to purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show. Let's face it, you're going to be buying from eBay anyway, but if multiple people do that, it really helps me out. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.